If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The biggest problem treating patients for cancer, for blindness, for heart disease, and of course, handling the next pandemic is not science, it's money. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. We've said the premise of this show is to explore ways that money can be a force for good in the world. Well, today we're talking about a financial innovation with the potential to save lives. It's called a biobond. Biobonds are an investment vehicle designed to solve a major problem in medical research. If the idea works, it could fund cures for many common diseases. When a doctor writes a prescription, we don't often think about how long it takes for each pill to get to the pharmacy in the first place. The process a drug goes through from the initial research to its completion is about a decade, and around 9 in 10 drugs fail before reaching that stage. Drug development is a five-step process. Step one is discovery and development. That research begins in a lab. Step two is preclinical research, where the drug is laboratory tested to get data on its safety and efficacy. Once the drug is deemed safe enough, the third step is to begin clinical trials on people. These steps take about seven years on average. And then after years of clinical trials, we arrive at step four. That's when the FDA team comes in to review all data related to the drug to decide whether or not to approve it. The final step five is ongoing. The FDA monitors the safety of products that are already on the market. Throughout these five steps, a lab needs to stay funded. Often at the beginning of a trial, a lab receives funding in the form of a grant from a government agency like the National Institutes of Health, from a nonprofit, or sometimes from a pharmaceutical company. Again, only about one in 10 drugs will make it through stages one and two. So investors, usually venture capitalists and pharma, gravitate toward projects that are near the end of the process because they're more likely to pay off. It's the middle stages that get overlooked. A lot of promising research never makes it to market because of a lack of funding in the middle stages. People in healthcare call it the valley of death. So how do we avoid this valley of death? That's where biobonds come in. Biobonds would create low-interest, government-backed loans to labs to fund research in these middle phases. They would be bundled together to spread risk the same way mortgages and pension funds are and sold to institutional investors. By reducing risk, biobonds could attract investors to a key research phase when investment is needed but difficult to find. Biobonds would also allow for a safety net if a research project fails. If the bond's participants can't make a payment and the bond falls below a certain threshold, a government guarantee would kick in. 
Imagine what would happen if all these potential breakthroughs that get stuck in the valley of death had the resources to make it across the finish line. It's not the science, it's the money. If you had asked Pfizer and Moderna if they could do a COVID-19 vaccine, they would have said it would take them years. That's Karen Petru, managing partner of Federal Financial Analytics and author of The Engine of Inequality, The Fed and the Future of Wealth in America. For her, biobonds are personal. When Karen was a teenager, she was diagnosed with retinal degeneration, which caused her to go blind several decades ago. Now she sits on the board of the Foundation Fighting Blindness, which has funded a lot of promising research, including research for inherited retinal disease. The Foundation Fighting Blindness is part of that early funding group in stages one and two of research and development. Once drugs are ready to go into clinical trials, the money is often stretched thin, and they can only fund a handful of potential studies. Petra was determined to get more of these projects, which could prove revolutionary in curing blindness, off the ground. She turned to venture capitalists for help. So in 2013, we had a meeting up in Boston with a bunch of venture capitalists and big biopharma companies. Said, How do we solve this financial model? Because there's great science here. We could cure this form of blindness. We really could. And one of them said, we agree the science is great, but it doesn't fit our business model. Our investors won't support that. So I came home from Boston, and when my husband, Basil, picked me up at the airport, I said, this is what our day job is. Let's use it to try to figure out a way to change the biomedical funding model. And that's how we got started. Karen and her husband had been advising Wall Street investors for decades. In some ways, they were uniquely situated to rethink the model. Together, they came up with the structure for biobonds. Petru brought the Biobond bill to Congress in 2018. She pitched it initially as a financial instrument to be purchased by pension funds, insurance companies, and other institutional investors to fund research on blindness. The idea was that the National Institutes of Health would choose promising research projects that would be given a loan. By the time the bond came due, the project would have reached a late enough stage of development that it would have commercial value or be eligible for other funding making it possible to repay the loan. Petru and her husband then proposed expanding the bill to fund cures for other diseases in addition to blindness. If the current biobonds bill is approved by Congress, it will require the government to guarantee $10 billion a year for three years to fund loans for medical labs to conduct clinical trials. Momentum started to grow around the bill, and then everything changed. First, Karen's husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And then the pandemic hit. He fought it really hard. The COVID crisis just stopped the kind of clinical trials that give patients not just hope for themselves, but all of us. Hospitals closed, healthcare facilities closed, but so did biomedical research. I know a great researcher who said that people literally rushed into her lab, took all the rubber gloves and told her, you know, euthanize your mice. It's over. It's done. Petro's husband died in March of 2020. She believes that if he had been able to start the clinical trial as planned, and if COVID hadn't happened at the same time, he might be alive today. A recent survey shows how much the diversion of resources to COVID research has dried up funding for experimental cancer treatments. I know far better than I would like not only how important biomedical research is, but how much we have to catch up. We've lost at least 
three to five years. It's not just the one and a half, almost two years of the pandemic. When you close biomedical trials, you just don't turn a key and start them up. We've lost a lot of time, and that means we're going to lose a lot of people if we don't come up with a new way to speed biomedical research. Now that at least some of the scientific focus is shifting back from COVID, Petru thinks there's a lot of catching up to do. Studies like the one her husband was in can yield results given time and funding, which means cures are possible, but it requires a lot of investment to convert these research projects into treatments that can reach patients. So maybe I can use an example of a company we just funded and launched called Opus Genetics. Ben Yerksa is CEO of the Foundation Fighting Blindness, the same organization where Karen Petru sits on the board. He walked us through the financial cost of developing new treatments, in this case, one for curing blindness. Opus Genetics was conceived of and funded by the Foundation's venture arm. They raised $19 million as what we call a seed financing. That's just to get the company off the ground and up and going. They're initially intending to develop three gene therapies for rare genetic blinding disease. That $19 million will fund the company for about 15 to 18 months. Once they get the first program to the clinical trial phase, they'll have to turn around and raise an additional $50 million to pay for the first results. And that will take them out another about three years. So... It'll take about four and a half years to get to the first real clinical results, and the company will burn through about $69 million. Yerkes' organization is part of the wave of early investors, nonprofits and government grants we mentioned earlier that fund initial research. But if a second wave doesn't happen, if the venture capitalists decide not to come in, it will probably mean that a study will not be able to continue. We asked MarketWatch reporter Andrea Riquier to tell us more about how the current model works. The current venture capital models tend to be very binary. Pharmaceutical research lives or dies on a single clinical result. A drug or a treatment either works or it doesn't. That's how the venture capitalists think about it, at least. But in reality, sometimes even if the original trial doesn't pan out as hoped, the data can be useful for other studies. Rogaine, the medication used to prevent hair loss, was originally intended as a blood pressure drug. Venture capitalists like to say that they take on risk and they like to talk about themselves as spotting really promising companies that nobody else sees or, you know, really promising ideas that look risky, but they're actually very risk averse. So venture capitalists may steer clear and pharmaceutical companies, which are the other likely investor in late stage pharma research, they make llama onto one promising project or not. The analogy some people use is drilling for oil. It's very high risk, but it's very high reward. Biobonds could help keep these projects going when the VCs and pharma companies aren't ready to go all in on a drug yet. The researcher would get loan proceeds, not grant money, but loans to be paid back, likely on a regular schedule, monthly or quarterly, to the institutional investor who buys the bond. Basically, the lab would get a loan which it would then pay back in regular installments. Investors would buy the bundled loans. If the bond loses more than 50% of its value, the government guarantee kicks in. In that case, the investors would recoup at least 50% of their initial investment. The biobonds idea is similar to what we've seen used in both the housing and energy sectors. What's new is finding a way to apply that model to medical research. There's an interesting analogy to the housing market. 
The housing market, as it exists in the United States today, is the result of a financial innovation from the 1970s, known as the mortgage-backed security. You spread the risk around picking different types of projects, projects at different stages of their life cycle. We've also seen this structure used in something called a green bond. If you know anything about green bonds, now it's a $600 plus billion market funding sustainable energy and climate risk reduction. And it started in 2007 with one small $100 million bond guaranteeing a loan from the World Bank. Green bonds, in theory, allow fixed-income investors to help fight climate change without taking on too much risk. Disbursements from these bonds go to projects like wind and solar energy, hydropower electricity generation, and energy storage. Here's Ben Yerksa again. Frankly, green bonds started because the World Bank backstopped the first few green bonds, and that started the whole industry. So we're looking for a way to just get it started and to backstop it so that it can be a stable launch. The biotech industry has been funded almost entirely by venture capital. Engaging in long-term medical research that has to go through so many stages can be stressful, especially when you're relying on investors who are pushing for short-term gains. While the point of government-backed biobonds is to reduce financial risk for the investor, it might also take some of the pressure off the researcher. I joke sometimes that venture capitalists have the patience of a firecracker. <laughs> but if you had a 10 to 15 year loan with really attractive terms, you could take on some riskier, bolder projects because you don't have a venture capitalist poking you every year saying, where's my exit? Where's my results? It could really change the way the field is funded. So what kinds of research would be funded by biobonds? Petra says to be eligible, any project would first need a certificate from the FDA. So we know that the money that investors put up will go to high-quality biomedical research. It won't all work, but it will all go towards knowledge and cures and treatments. Biobonds aren't perfect. Unlike grants from institutions like the NIH, researchers would need to repay biobonds. In the current model, it's hard to find alternatives or funders that have no strings attached. The hope is that there will be more funding, increasing the likelihood of one breakthrough success which can more than make up for any losses. And researchers can try to sell the intellectual property they've built through their research for other purposes. We might think of the U.S. as being a leader in medical research investment, but we actually rank ninth in the world compared to countries like Israel and South Korea, which spend more on research than we do relative to their GDP. NIH funding has actually been relatively flat since 2003 when you adjust for inflation. Compared to where we were then, the current NIH budget is actually a little more than 3% lower. So Stephanie, you can almost make the argument here that part of the need for biobonds could be eliminated if we just increased some of the funding to the NIH. I think too often what happens when it comes to federal budgeting is that governments try to fill in the numbers in a spreadsheet where they're looking at their budget, kind of like we look at our household budget and think, well, how much more could I afford to spend on housekeeping or lawn care or babysitting and maybe put in a little bit more money instead of starting with a very different question, which is, what is it we're trying to accomplish, right? If you started with the mission, what do we want to see in terms of 
dealing with some of these chronic illnesses and disease, cure for cancer, sort of like a moonshot in a sense, where the goal was to put a man on the moon. And you could imagine the federal government laying out some very ambitious mission-oriented goals and then writing a budget that allows you to deliver on those missions. So what would it take to bring the concept of biobonds into reality? And how life-saving can their effect really be? More on that after the break. Welcome back to the Best New Ideas in Money. Before the break, we heard about the ways clinical studies are currently funded and how the science gets from the lab to the patient. Biobonds could be a way to fund riskier research that could yield extraordinary results. I look at this as an opportunity for innovation versus iteration. This is an opportunity for an innovation to break through. George Huntley is the chief executive officer of the Diabetes Leadership Council. Like Karen Petru, Huntley's interest in the Biobonds Initiative is personal. He has type 1 diabetes. I've been living with type 1 for 38 years. Huntley has lived through various advancements in diabetes care and knows the value of clinical trials and how money comes into play. When I first was diagnosed, I would take my injection at 7 in the morning and, you know, it was going to kick her in around lunchtime. But if I've been more active, it's going to kick in at 11. So I would have to eat at 11 a.m. regardless of whether I had a noon lunch scheduled with somebody. I had pricked my finger 80,000 times until I got on my continuous glucose monitor. So the technological breakthroughs, both in drugs and in devices, have been superb. Three decades seems like a long time for Huntley to wait for his quality of life to improve, much less a cure, which right now doesn't exist for diabetes. But after hearing Karen Petru and Ben Yerksa describe the process of funding medical research, you can understand how many barriers there are to successful treatments. There's so much fundraising required before you can even get started. The expected cost to develop a new drug has been estimated to range from less than a billion to more than $2 billion. Because it takes that kind of investment, and that's really getting through the stage two and three clinical trials, which are very expensive. Not that early research is not expensive, but those clinical trials and what the FDA requires in order to approve a drug. So it takes a lot of investment, and it takes a lot of time to get to the point where someone's going to put the rest of that investment in place. Just take a pharmaceutical company. If they're going to invest $500 million into something, it needs to be a halfway well-baked cake before they're going to take it and put the icing on it and all this good stuff on top. It's getting the work to this level that allows you know, more of it to be taken to the finish line. With the current model, if a research team doesn't have a pharmaceutical investor, it's likely to seek a grant from the government. The NIH invests over $41 billion a year in grants to various hospitals and universities for research, often coming in at stage one to help get projects off the ground. Think about the ROI for the federal government. If you cure diabetes, as an example, think how much money you save out of Medicare. Think how much money you save out of Medicaid in that process. So the ROI on doing something like this is likely astronomical. Over 10% of the U.S. population has diabetes. One dollar out of every four dollars in U.S. healthcare costs is spent on caring for people with diabetes. 
Curing the disease would save $327 billion a year, just in terms of financial cost, to say nothing of the human cost. And that could be just the beginning. The global cost of visual impairment due to age-related macular degeneration is estimated at $343 billion, including $255 billion in direct health care costs. According to Ben Yerksa of the Foundation Fighting Blindness, there's already a successful model similar to Biobonds working at the state level. Here in North Carolina, where I am, the state actually funds a loan program. It's designed more for, you know, really young startup companies to kind of get their feet wet and get a few experiments done so they can attract venture capital. But it's generally more of an economic development tool because these are smaller dollars. But, you know, all these companies start as small groups of, you know, two or three people and a patent. (laughs) And you go from there. So at the state level, I think, you know, we have some good data there that shows that this can really work. But to make a real impact on funding experimental research, biobonds need to be available on a national scale. The bill has 19 co-sponsors and the support of about 20 organizations, including the Alliance for Aging Research, the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Association, and the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. The Biobonds bill, though, still has a few hurdles to cross before coming to a research center near you. Once we get that hearing, we need something called the Congressional Budget Office score. We will be looking for legislative vehicles to carry the bill. A Congressional Budget Office score will estimate the budgetary impacts of the proposed bill. Once there's a CBO score, lawmakers can vote on the bill. Petra says it's hard to predict when that might happen. Whether it's late this year or early next, nobody knows. Because it depends on a lot of things which we have no control. There are always going to be disagreements about which diseases deserve the most attention and the most funding. On some level... For good or bad, that's going to be political. It's not always as obvious as COVID's more important to address than carpal tunnel syndrome. So I think the case maybe for biobonds is more that for the diseases that, for whatever reason, have a harder time convincing people this is worth funding, even though they might have a huge impact on the population, that it provides another avenue for raising that money. It is definitely political. And when you're talking about committing public money to these sorts of endeavors, I do think that, you know, it always is going to involve choices and Congress has to prioritize. And it seems like the thing to do would be to try to go after the kinds of illnesses that affect the largest number of people. If the biobonds legislation becomes law, labs might not have to use up as much of their time and resources applying for grants, only to lose funding if their research fails to deliver. By minimizing risk, funding for medical research would no longer be limited to high-stakes venture capital investment. It could become something we all support with our retirement accounts. You might even be investing in your own future health. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Karen Petru, Ben Yerksa, George Huntley, and Andrea Riquier. To learn more about biobonds, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Libowitz-Lockard. 
Our researcher is Alana Myers. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For Market Watch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Melissa Pons. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.